are in Jonah, and so if you're here, uh, this, is a, this is a good place to be. If you're, if you're a guest with us today, if you're just coming in, I'll talk more about that. But let me just say, it's amazing how, how one single sentence can totally change your life. Um, we, were, we were at a restaurant um, on New Year's Day, and uh, right behind us, the, 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 there was a waiter and uh, another kind of person from the wait staff came up. The waiter was carrying uh, some food. The other person was carrying a camera or a phone and, and was videoing this. And I thought, this is weird. It was going on right behind me. And, well, it turns out the man was proposing to his uh, girlfriend. And, and so this, but that one question could be a question. Will you marry me? And you know how a life can be changed with that simple little sentence. Or it could be an announcement. Maybe you're, you're, you're there for an ultrasound and excited to have a baby, and then the doctor says, uh, there's three in there. And, uh, well, that will change your life. Um, or, or it could be, you got the job. And so this, this total different path now that you're on because of this career change. And so it could be that. Or it could be something like this. The other end, you're, you're fired. Um, or you have cancer, or your wife has Alzheimer's, or your son, I hate to tell you this, but your son was killed in a car accident this morning. See, one, one little sentence, and, and there's this reversal in life and a change of direction. A few words, a single sentence in, in one conversation, or maybe just one phone call, or a doctor's visit. And the whole course of your life is forever changed. Life can change, can turn on a dime. Well, in the opening verses of the book of Jonah, we have this kind of life-altering sentence here. It's very simply, in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh. And with that little sentence, Jonah's life is completely reoriented. Everything changes for him. So, so his life was headed in one direction as this prophet of God up to that point. He, he was living this meaningful, somewhat comfortable, fruitful life as a servant of God, a mouthpiece uh, of God to his people. And then this, this word from the Lord came abruptly and, and broke into his life. And everything changed. If you're, if you're new here, uh, you're, again, here on a good Sunday to be here. If this is your first time, if you're recently coming here, we're, we're starting a new study today in the book of, of Jonah. And so we're going to spend the next five, six weeks in, this, in these chapters, walking through these verses on Sunday mornings. And so I hope you're able to join with us throughout this study. Uh, do you know where the book of Jonah is in your Bible? You probably do by now because we just read from it a moment ago. If you don't know where, if you haven't got there, please find it. You can look in the table of contents. There's no shame in that at all. And so look, turn, turn to Jonah. But it's, in, it's found in that last section of the Old Testament we call the, the Minor Prophets. And so if you open your Bible and you're familiar with the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you, find, if you open and you're in one of those places, just go left a little bit and you'll be into those last books of the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. It has all those little Star Wars-like names in there. Habakkuk and Haggai and Nahum and Obadiah one Kenobi or so all that kind of stuff. Um, so so we, we, we call them minor prophets not because they're of minor significance like uh, they're just kind of the, the the minor leagues you know the uh, bush league kind of 
of, of Bible books. No, we call them minor simply because they're smaller in size. So you have books like Isaiah, 66 uh, chapters, and Jeremiah, 52 chapters. These are going to be much smaller uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, and so that's why we call them minor. So this morning, uh, I simply first want to just kind of orient us to the book, uh, to this four-chapter, small four-chapter book, and then we're going to dive right into chapter one uh, today. So just a few kind of introductory statements, and these are very simple, but I I think they set us up where we need to go. First thing I would say, this is a true story. It is a true story. It is about real people, real events, real places, real history. Uh, This is not make-believe. It's not a a parable, uh, just a made-up story to teach a a lesson. It's it's not a fishtail. It's not a Christian version of Moby Dick. Um, Thanks to flannel graph and cartoon drawings and veggie tales, um, we may become kind of preloaded with this thought that this is, this is just fiction. It's exaggerated Bible fiction. And, and it's just some kind of make-believe moralistic story to teach us to be better people or something like that. And this big magical fish is one of the characters. Um, that's not what this is about. This is a true story. It came out of a real context. It was written in probably the 8th century uh, B.C., around 765, during the days when Jeroboam II was was king of Israel, that northern territory. He was one of a long line of bad kings over that northern part of of the kingdom. And, And so this came in that period before Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh, is the cap was the capital, and so that came later in 722 BC. So this is prior to that time, again in the sequence of of wicked kings in Israel. All right. So, but I just want you to say it's is this is rooted in time space history. It's true. Now, if you struggle with that and you think, you give me a break that we didn't read verse 17, but the Lord appoints his great fish to swallow Jonah, and he lives in the fish for three days. I mean, if you choke on that, I can only imagine that you're going to choke on a, a lot of other parts of Scripture. Creation. Let's just start in Genesis 1. And, and if, do you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? Do you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe that there will be a new heavens and a new earth? So we don't, if, if we believe those things, it shouldn't, this is, shouldn't be so much that we choke on this, this fish. Second, it's a short story. Short and simple, I would say. It's, it's simple enough. It's just four chapters, and it's simple enough for kids to be able to understand it, and this is why it's such a great uh, story for children's teachers and have been using this in Sunday school classes and vacation Bible schools to teach kids about, about the Lord. And so it's helpful in that way. It's a simple outline. It's we'll, we'll basically take a chapter a week, and I'll explain how we're veering from that a little bit today. But, um, but the first chapter, we find Jonah running from God, Second chapter, Jonah is praying to God. Third chapter, Jonah is preaching for God. And then the, the last chapter, Jonah, Jonah is pouting before the Lord. And so, again, very simple outline. So that's it. It's a short story. Third, it's a great story. It's a great story. Below that kind of surface simplicity of it, it, it is a very subtle and complex story. And and so to say it's say it's simple doesn't mean that it's simplistic. There is there is a lot that we could squeeze out of these four small chapters, 
and we won't even begin to exhaust what could be said uh, about this book and what the Lord could teach us through here. Let me just a quote from a commentator. I just give you a sense of this. He said this, Reading Jonah is like standing before a great mountain. Having trained hard and being well prepared for the climb, one might assume that a successful ascent as well as descent is assured. Such an attitude, as every experienced mountain climber knows, is foolhardy. And like great mountains, great books command respect. And so don't think, okay, I know Jonah, I've seen the flannel graph, I've watched Veggie Tales. Jonah's easy, it's a fish, and Jonah runs from God, swallowed by the fish, prays, repents, preaches, and then kind of gets grumpy at the end, no big deal. And we can learn a few little lessons about that. No, it's, there's, there's a lot here. It's a very well-written story. There are, there, for, for those, all two of you who know Hebrew, uh, there are some very subtle and beautiful uh, Hebrew literary devices that are employed throughout the story that was very skillfully written. And we'll, I'll draw out some of those. Don't, don't worry. Don't freak out. I'm afraid we're going to be speaking in Hebrew every week. But, uh, but I'll point out some of those things. But just very well-written. Third, excuse me, fourth, it's a revealing story. It's a revealing story. It's not just a cold kind of journalistic reporting of events. When we say it's true story, it's actual history, it's not just like, well, then this, then that, then this, and, and he went and talked to him and that kind of thing. It's, it's not just that cold reporting of events, it's describing and it's interpreting events, explaining what they mean. And, and, and it's, it's revealing to us God in these events. And in, in a sense, as we'll see even this morning, revealing something about ourselves. But, but through this true story, it's, it's not about a fish. I know we think Jonah, we instantly think fish. But it's not about a fish, it's about God. The fish is mentioned only four times in these four chapters. Uh, the city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. God is mentioned 38 times. This is about God. It's to reveal God to us, this God whom there is none like him that we've been singing about today. Just a, another addition, additional thing to say about, by way of introduction. Jesus loved the story of Jonah. Uh, he, he's the only of all the 12 minor prophets. He's the only one that Jesus ever mentioned by name. And we have two references to this in the New Testament. And so Jesus loved it. I, I, hope, I hope you come to love it too. And uh, that you grow in your appreciation for this portion of the word. Just one other thing is the is the kind of the theme of of Jonah, uh, and maybe the key verse we could say is in Jonah two nine. It's this: the salvation belongs to the Lord. There's one overarching theme that ties this together. There are there are going to be multiple things and truths we learn about God through this, but this is one big one: salvation belongs to God. If we are to be rescued, if we are to be saved, God must do it. We cannot save ourselves. But this is the other side is God does pursue and rescue sinners. And this is what we see. He's relentlessly pursuing um, pursuing us. All right, confession time. I alluded to this. I was waffling on how many weeks we're going to spend in Jonah and how many chapters we'll cover each week. Uh, had every intention of covering a chapter a week and then taking Jesus's how he viewed Jonah at the very end. Already, before we've ever started, I'm breaking with his plan. So 
uh, was Friday afternoon. I decided we're just we're going to take two weeks to cover chapter one, so we'll go from there. Uh, so today you're getting the first point of a sermon. Uh, so it's a two-week sermon, two points. Uh, you're just getting the first part today. Um, and so this 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 week we're going to kind of look at Jonah and what can we learn about ourselves through looking at him. And then next week we're really getting into the real focus, which again is God. And so today, the simple point is this, is we are Jonah when we resentfully run. We are Jonah when we resentfully run. Uh, Next week, this won't be on the screen, next week it'll be we need God who relentlessly pursues. We need God who relentlessly pursues. But today, we are Jonah. Um, Just again, a little short quote from a commentary I read this week, just one sentence. He said, when I... When I watch the working of my own heart, this is what I am compelled to write. I am Jonah. That's, that's what I want you to see. When I watch the working of my own heart, and if, you, if you're honest, if you ask the Lord to search your heart, and if you really honestly examine yourself today as we look at, at Jonah's life today a little bit, I think you would also be compared to write at the bottom of your outline, I am Jonah. And if that's not true... Maybe that's wonderful, or maybe there's a little blindness. So while the book of Jonah's main focus, again, is God and his rescuing, pursuing, saving work, loving pursuit of his people, we, we do see ourselves in the mirror by looking at this, this prophet who's on the run. And so we see in him the, 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 our need for God's pursuit and rescue of us. And so that's what we'll look today. So like us, I mean, just a few things about Jonah. First thing, Jonah received many privileges. He received many privileges. See, this right away, just we don't, we don't have a lot of detail about Jonah here and, and in terms of his bio, but we, we just say that Jonah's not just some random guy that God kind of spoke to, picked out of a crowd. While we don't know much about him, we do learn a little bit from this book, and we there's a reference in First Kings chapter four or Second Kings fourteen. So we can kind of begin to put together some of the pieces of the jigsaw of Jonah's life here, and kind of see we, we learn a few things, and and so we see it in verse one. This the book begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Now in Second Kings fourteen twenty five, you can just write that reference down. You can go look at it in its context later. But it just says this. This is a reference to him. Uh, Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from Labohemoth as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. And so, just from... That little bit, we can at least say this, is while Jonah lived in a very dark and difficult time, if you know the context of kings in which we're, which is, is, is referenced there in Israel, and what a dark period with these wicked kings in Israel, and very bad men, he, he is still, he enjoyed many incredible spiritual privileges. He had the privilege of being God's servant. That's what the Second Kings 14 says. He was God's servant. He was a prophet of God. He was one of just a small handful of men that God selected and chose and gave the privilege of hearing his unmistakable voice and then communicating that to his people. 
So he got to hear God. He got to see God's plans and God's desires. And God commissioned him to, to see his purposes and then, and then to direct God's people accordingly. It was a mouthpiece for God. So he had, this was an incredible privilege. And so with that, he lived with this conscience, conscious sense of, of divine calling. God had set him apart for something special and unique, and he understood this as a true prophet of God. This, this call sat on his life. That was a great privilege. And, and, and with that privilege, it came the privilege of a fellowship with other prophets. That in, in Kings, it talks about the sons of the prophets. There were, there were these... So we, we, think, we tend to think of prophets just kind of working in isolation of one another, like they're these just kind of lone, reclusive individualists. And some of them sort of were, like the Jeremiah's and, and that kind of thing. But, but, but the work that God was doing through Jonah was interrelated with what he was doing through other prophets. They, they, they rubbed shoulders. They, they gathered together, it seems. There were these kind of this, this, this sons of prophets. There were these, they were these prophets and these men who kind of served them and went around with them. And so there was always this close fellowship with others, which was unique, especially in the northern, uh, uh, tr- with those northern tribes and of, of Israel, with, with all the wickedness and all the darkness, to have brothers that you could study and pray together and, and hear from God and proclaim uh, the truth and, and, and just have that fellowship. It was a great privilege. But even so, despite all those privileges and past opportunities and past fruitfulness and faithfulness and usefulness. He was a man who slipped, uh, stumbled, and ran from God. I just say, I think there's a lesson for us is past privilege, obedience, service, faithfulness, usefulness, fruitfulness, uh, is not a substitute for present obedience to God. So you, you, we can't draft on the past and thinking, man, God's really used me. And so we kind of let ourselves, um, give ourselves a pass for some refusal to do what God has told us to do now. Can't live, live off the fumes of past faithfulness to God. And you can't just think, well, I'm walking with God in many areas of my life. But I'm going to say no to him in this area. And that's probably okay because there's so much more over here. That, that doesn't cut it. We're, we are never, listen, we're never farther from God than when we're close to him and say no to him. Get that? So our, our, just some examples of what this might look. Are you in a relationship that you know is not pleasing to God, but you refuse to quit it? Is there a sin that you're holding on to and defending rather than confessing and killing? This is a, this is a temptation believers, believers face. They, we can feel that because God has used me or maybe is using me in these certain areas of my life that we can kind of harbor this sin and protect it and keep it on a leash and contain it. Uh, John Newton wrote about some of the temptations that come with gospel ministries he's writing to pastors but i think this applies to to all of us he said beware my friend of mistaking the ready exercise of gifts for the exercise of grace the minister may be assisted in public for the sake of his hearers and there is something in the nature of our public work when surrounded by a concourse of people that is suited to draw forth the exertion of our abilities 
and to engage our attention in outward services when the frame of the heart may be far from right in the sight of the Lord. You know what he's saying? Here, talk to me. I mean, I can stand up here and, and, and study hard and write a sermon and preach a sermon and you can say, wow, that was great, that really touched me and that really made a difference and uh, I just have never, never thought about that and that was very powerful and there could be this hidden uh, part of my life that's far from God. That's, that's, that's sobering. But this is true for all of us. Is we, we don't have to look far to see the headlines and, and those more well-known instances of pastors who stumble and fall, have this secret life, and we say, we're blessed by their ministry, we read their books, and we listen to their podcasts, and so good. God's used it greatly in my life, and then there's this other part of our life. But it's not just famous preachers. It's true for all believers. We can... Can't, you can't just kind of draft on obedience in one area while saying no to God in another area of our lives. Another thing that this just shows is none of us is exempt from the potential of stumbling and falling, of having a discipleship meltdown like Jonah had. None of, none of you should, none, none of, and no one you love, no one you look up to, parents, no one you look after is exempt from that possibility of stumbling and falling. There's no guarantees. Be careful of saying, I would never, or they would never. But instead, but for the grace of God, go I. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, Paul says. So that's the the first thing. Jonah, Jonah had many spiritual privileges. Second, Jonah rejected God's clear word. He rejected God's clear word. Look in verse 1 again. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, I'll explain more about this charge in just a moment. um, And we'll unpack that and give more detail. But it's basically this. You go about 600 miles to the northeast, Jonah, and preach to Nineveh. So, so we expect to read in the next verse something like this, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's what every good prophet would do, should do, is supposed to do. You compare this to, compare to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. The word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And then you look down. Another verse later, verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord and went and lived by the brook Cherith, in the, that is east of the Jordan. That's what's supposed to happen. Not so with Jonah. God says, you go east. Jonah says, no, I'm going west, like far west, 2,000 miles west. Most think that this was probably in Spain, uh, where he runs to in Tarshish. And so... Listen, though, it's not because Jonah was confused about what God wanted from him. The, the, the expectation from the Lord was crystal clear. Uh, it, Jonah's problem wasn't intellectual. It doesn't, they didn't say, I, you know, I need, I need some weeks to really study what you want from me, God. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against them. Uh, let me get my books, let me get my lexicons and commentaries and try to figure out what that means to arise. And what, what, actually, what actually are you talking about? Or, or go. Maybe when, when he says go, he really means stay put and pray for Nineveh. Not actually. No, it wasn't. His problem's not intellectual. His problem is moral. 
God's will collided with Jonah's will. That's what you're seeing take place here. Jonah had his own plans, his own desires, his own expectations, his own ambitions. He had his own ideas about the way things ought to be, how he could best serve God and be used by God. And then God's plans and God's desires were contrary to his. So it's a collision of wills. That's what you're seeing here. But that's not like something we can't even relate to, is it? No, we, we can also reject the clear word from the Lord in the Scriptures when it collides with what we want to do. God tells us very plainly in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God. You know what, I, you know what, I know what my will is for you? My will for you is your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. But then you tell yourself after you've had a really difficult day or a really hard week, had college finals or big big paper or difficult meetings, you, 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 think, you tell yourself that you'll better be able to kind of handle those pressures of life if you could just spend an hour or two on the, online looking at images that you know you shouldn't be looking at and videos you shouldn't be watching. And that will, that will kind of help you kind of calm down and relax. So th- this, is, this is what I want. But this is what God says. There's this collision. Or you shall be my witnesses. Go and make disciples. But we convince ourselves that no, it's probably better to hole up in my house and stay silent with my neighbors and people. I think that's probably the better way to go. So, we, we, again, the problem isn't intellectual. It's not a lack of clarity on God's part. He should have made this more clear. It's moral. It's, a, it's this collision of wills. We, we are Jonah. Uh, when I look at the working of my heart, I realize this. I am Jonah. Third, Jonah resented God's compassion. He resented God's compassion. Patrick alluded to this earlier as we are singing. Yeah. Verse, verse 2 again, God says, Arise and go to Nineveh. Now we, what's, we hear Nineveh and we think, what's so hard about that, Jonah? Is it the distance? Is it just 500, 600 miles? Is that too far to travel? You don't like being away from home? Or is it the climate? It's the desert. Oh, it's so hot and arid and it's just it's not good for my skin. My skin gets all dried out. Is it the food? Oh, they just eat weird, gross things up there in Nineveh. I, I, just, I just can't go, so I'm going to go the other way. What is it about? Is this like God saying to us, arise and go to Cincinnati or St. Louis? I'm trying to think of some city that's about 600 miles away. I don't know. Don't check me right now. Um, is, that, is that what he's saying? Is, just, is it that simple? No. I mean, the ancient city of Nineveh it doesn't really mean anything to most of us, uh, but it meant something to Jonah and to the Jews in his day. Um, Nineveh was one of the largest and most wicked cities in all the ancient world. It was a huge city. It, 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 by ancient standards, certainly. It took three days, uh, historians say, to walk from one side of the metroplex to the other. So this is a vast area. I don't mean it was a concentration for three days, but to go from kind of the suburbs to the suburbs, it was a three-day journey. It had these massive walls. It was big enough to ride three chariots across, on the top of the walls, so these massive 
protected city, large, impressive buildings, incredible architecture and arts and culture and music. And it was this major, major city. But Jonah's problem wasn't like he was some kind of country boy and he didn't like the big city and he just wasn't comfortable going there. So he just thought this was a terrible idea for God to send him to Nineveh. That wasn't it. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And, and this was one of Israel's most threatening neighbors. And it, already there was oppression and there was, there was this weight upon Israel and threats from Assyria. We're going to, as you see in Israel's history, it's going to get worse and it'll actually go into captivity and Assyrians will come in and conquer. But it, it's located again, about 600 miles northeast of where, where Jonah is here in, in Israel. It's in present-day Iraq and uh, the modern city of Mosul, which has obviously been in the news a lot over the last year or two with uh, the Iraqi army taking control of Mosul back from ISIS. And so we've been watching that unfold. But that's Nineveh. That's what we're talking about here. So it's, a, so it's this big, major city in the ancient world, but it's also extremely wicked. Now, kids, your parents, I don't want to scare you, but you, you just... You might have to have conversation. Let me just describe. I'm going to try to do this PG. But they were known as being some of the cruelest people, uh, really in history, but certainly in the ancient world. Their reputation for brutality and barbarism was its hard for us to fathom. Uh, just nothing like it. Um, in, in their histories, they boasted about how cruel they were. When they conquer a city, they'd skin residents of that city alive, men, women, and children. They'd hang the skins on the outside of the, the walls. And then they would take those people who were still alive, many of them still alive, and would bury them in sand so that only their head was out of the sand. And they would stake their tongues in the ground so that they died of thirst. It's just animal-like cruelty. They, 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 would, they would impale enemy soldiers alive outside of the cities as a warning, and, and they, had, they, would, they would pile up heads, build these little pyramids of heads uh, to just show, you don't mess with us. And they would pierce the chins of prisoners, run a rope through their chins, and, and, and tie them up like dogs in these kennels of, of, uh, of, of their prisoners. They boasted about uh, raping and killing women and even young girls. And so these are the people. I just, I, but I, I do think it's important to get a sense because we read Nineveh and it's just, it's just a city. But this is, these are the people. God says to Jonah, I want you to arise. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach. I want you to, I want you to go. And, and as you, again, as you read the Old Testament, you realize this is, that Israel was one of, the, was, was one of the Nineveh's, the Assyrian Empire's primary targets. There, the, the heat was being turned up on, on Israel. And so Jonah and people Jonah knew they had been and they certainly would be uh, uh, directly victimized by the Ninevites. And so just the mere mention of the word Nineveh, it brought this visceral reaction from Jews like Jonah. This, this deep-seated, intense, dark, angry fearful thoughts and feelings that were arose within them when they would hear of Nineveh. 
It's again, it, it, some, so, so there was, there was probably as Jonah hears this call from God, this word from God, go preach in, in Nineveh. There, there, some of it was probably fear, but it's more than that. As, as Patrick said earlier in Jonah three, we learned that the real reason Jonah didn't want to go and preach was he was afraid they would actually repent and God might show compassion on them and forgive them. He didn't want that. He, he didn't want to risk his life. He didn't want to risk his reputation as a prophet of God in Israel to, to go to the, these Gentile dogs who were nothing but their enemies and risk everything to go preach to them. Those people, that, they don't deserve a lick of God's grace and mercy. He says, no way. It's hard for us to relate to this because there's really, there's really no comparison. I guess just try to think of, 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 of maybe you put together two cities that are just the most wicked that you can. I think of some, some hostile, hostile people like Iran or something like that where at least the leadership of the country. I know things are there's happening there right now, but just what's, what's spoken by the leadership, if that's reflected in the people and this hatred for for us, and and then the wickedness of uh, of Amsterdam or or Las Vegas or whatever you want to say. Just put all that together. Just think of a wicked place, people who hate your guts and want you dead, and they're involved in gross immorality. And just God says, "Go, preach." And it's just hard against hard for us. And, and He wasn't called to go and preach. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He was, what does he call? He's called to go and call out against them. You, you tell them they're doomed. You tell them that they, of, of God's imminent judgment. That's what his message was to be. And so, again, and you see yourself in Jonah a little bit. You write, begin to write at the bottom of your sheet, I, I, I am Jonah. Are there places you won't go? Are there people you won't talk to? Are there, are there works that you refuse to do that are beneath you? or Is it because, because it's too uncomfortable? Because it's too dangerous? Because it's too costly? Have you given God the limits of your obedience? Say, so, well, I'll do this, but no, God, that's, that's outside. Have you told him what's acceptable to you? This is, this is Jonah. And then connected to that, and this is what positively, do you love like God loves? Do you not resent God's compassion and God's character, but do you, do you love it and want to see it grow in you? Is your heart big like God's for the nations and for their salvation? Give us your heart, oh God. I've been singing this. The, the commentator said the pulse beat of God's heart has an evangelistic rhythm is that is your is the pulse beat of your heart have that same rhythm fourth fourth thing we see about Jonah is Jonah ran from God's presence he ran from God's presence so this word of the Lord came rise go to Nineveh call out against them and we should read so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, but instead we read verse 3. But Jonah rose, first part he got, then to flee. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
he went down to Joppa and found a ship to going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So his running is more than simply disobedience to this one command of God. No, he's, he's trying to get away from God's presence. Literally his face. He, he, Jonah's problem isn't really with Nineveh. and That's the presenting problem. But his problem is really with God. The God who might call him there. The God who might love Nineveh. The God who might want to see Nineveh saved. That's, the, that's his real beef is with God. So that's what he's running from. He's running from God. He, now he knows he can't, as a prophet, he knows the scriptures. He knows Psalm 113. He knows he can't ultimately escape from the presence of God. God is omnipresent, present everywhere. It's not a theological, uh, it's that he was some you know, dummy that didn't understand anything about God. No, what he's trying to get away from is that what Christians long ago, as you read Puritans and stuff, they talk about the felt presence of God. I know for us, we hear felt presence, and we probably have all these ideas. But just saying, I want to, I, I want to, I want nothing to do with God any longer. I don't want that pressure of of service and of prayer and of of communion with Him. I want distance. And, and so, notice he was running far away to Tarshish again, probably fifteen hundred, two thousand miles away. And what, but oh, lo and behold, he found a ship going to Tarshish. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Imagine that. It's not like this is just a little water ferry that makes, you know, runs all day long out to a little island off the coast. And, and so, of course, you're going to find a, a ferry going out there. No, this is, this is a long ways away. And this is not something that would happen every day. This would be very rare occasions that a ship would be heading to Tarshish, which is exactly where he wanted to flee, far from God. But he's goes to Joppa, and lo and behold, hey, a ship, Tarshish bound, perfect. Let me on board. Let me just say, just back up a little. Are you running from God? Are, are you, maybe not externally, maybe it's not obvious, like in Jonah where we have this clear, visible, maybe it's this internal running from God, distancing, pulling back, kind of building this wall in your heart, wanting to throw off his authority from you, Wanting to somehow get away from his felt presence. Trying to escape his watchful eye. When you are ready to run for God, there will always be a ship ready to go carry you to Tarshish. And there will always be room on it. That's the truth. I mean, I imagine here he is, this, this, this breathless prophet who's just hightailed it from... To, to down to Joppa, down to this port city, and he's running as fast as he can away from the presence of God, and he, he finally makes it into this port city and goes out to the docks, and he's counting all the coins in his pocket and trying to get every scrape, every dime he has together and to purchase his ticket, and this adrenaline just coursing through him. And then he boards the ship, probably spent all of his life savings to get that ticket to go a distance like that. As a prophet, they weren't wealthy men. But as the ship weighs anchor and leaves port and off in the distance, he sees the shoreline begin to disappear. He thinks, I made it. And yeah, I spent everything I had, but it was, it was worth it. And so maybe he breathed a deep sigh of relief. And then worn out from running, he goes below deck and goes to sleep. 
That brings the fifth thing about Jonah. Jonah rested when he should have repented. He rested, he relaxed when he should have repented. What was going through his mind as he laid down in the bottom of that boat to, to sleep? What thoughts were kind of flashing across his mind? He's trying to make sense, interpret what's happened on this crazy day, this one sentence that totally changed his life. What's, what's going through his mind? How does he interpret all the events of that day? From reading the story, it seems like Jonah may have thought, well, it worked. He was running. Now he rests. It's over. How, how did he interpret it? How did he interpret the waiting ship in Joppa that was heading to Tarshish, lo and behold? Did he think, well, I guess God gave me an out. I guess he let me off the hook. I, maybe he's actually okay with this change of plans. Maybe he understands how repulsive that is to go to Nineveh, and he's given me a pass. After all, everything's been so smooth so far. Maybe, maybe I'm okay. Maybe God's okay with me. Listen, don't interpret your experiences as indicating God's approval or permission. Scripture, not feelings, not circumstances, is, 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 has to be your guide. Um, we live in a day when experience is, is considered absolutely authoritative. authoritative. We, look to, we look for God's guidance through our subjective impressions and, and through our feelings and through our circumstances and our experiences and, and the opinions of other people. And listen, there's impressions and experiences and emotions and feelings and opinions, those aren't necessarily wrong. I'm not saying they have no play in your life, but it is wrong to be guided by them when you're refusing to be guided by God's clear word. That's what, we're, that's what I'm saying. It's wrong to take the events of your life as a guide, as your guide and as your teacher and as your, as your leader when you've refused to take God's word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. That's what's wrong. So you have, I mean, you've, you've, I've had conversations with people who, who, who are doing something that's clearly against God's revealed will in the scriptures. But they say, look, it, it, it worked out. Everything's going fine. It, everything's fine. I'm happy now and everything's, everything's going well. So it's, it's almost as if it can't be wrong because everything's going well. People involved in an adulterous relationship and say, well, I was unhappy in my marriage. I just, I just couldn't be myself. And then I met this man, this woman, and I felt like God was telling me he wants me to be happy. And I am now. And like, can't argue with that. That's from their perspective. But what if your good feelings are actually the enemy trying to bait your soul into a trap? It may not be from God. You have a crafty and deceitful enemy whose job it is to make sure there's always a ship ready in the port for you when you want to run from God. And there will be. I mean, if you always let your eyes wander in lust, there will always be a woman who's ready to return those flirtations. If you want out of your marriage, there will always be a perfect man or woman who shows up. If you love money, if you're tempted by greed, and there will always be this amazing deal on something that you don't even need. <laughs> and, or, or a way to borrow, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to possess it, to get ahead. There's always, there's always a ship 
Don't interpret that as God's approval or permission. People say, though, I have peace in my heart about it. Like that means that God, again, has given a stamp of approval on their choice, in clear, their choice that's in clear contradiction to God's word. Um, one of Satan's go-to weapons to give us, a, give us peace about doing what's wrong. This is as old as Adam, Genesis 3. He's the very first temptation. He assures the woman, it's fine. Forbidden tree is actually very good for food. And, and if it will make you wise, you're, surely you're not going to die. He worked to give her peace about disobeying what God told them. So that peace in your heart, it, it may not be God's affirmation of what you're doing. It may be the devil numbing your conscience as he leads you down the path of death. So don't look to your feelings or your impressions or your impressions about peace in your heart as a guide to your life. Look to God's word. Uh, feelings in our hearts, they change based upon what we ate for breakfast and and who wins the game, uh, and uh, what kind of mood we're in, how you slept. This never changes. Never changes. Trust it. Believe it. All right, look in the text. We're going to accelerate and just get to one, one last little point, and then we'll be done. I'm going to kind of read through some of the remaining chapter. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind. We're going to come back and pick this up next week, and really zero in on on how on God and how he's at work here and it's amazing and it's wonderful and so don't you don't want to you don't want to be here today and miss next week because this is just bad news today well we get to see ourselves we want to see God and we're going to behold him next week but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up then the mariners these professional sailors they were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So these experienced pagan sailors are scared out of their wits. This must be an awful storm. And so they start pulling out their crystals and their amulets and their little idols and whatever they have and their charms. And they start praying to their gods, hoping that one of them will be in a good mood and one of them just might help them that day. They're just doing whatever they can, crying out to their gods. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So they're, they're desperate. The cargo is how they make money. This is their profit. This is why they're going to Tarshish. They're, they're, they're taking this cargo, and so they, but they just start chucking it. They're, they're so desperate to survive. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had lain down and fallen fast asleep. So these pagan sailors are up on the deck. They're having this theological discussion uh, and, and talking to their gods and praying to their gods. And then below deck, the, one of God's mouthpieces, the one true living God, who one of the men through whom he speaks and reveals himself uh, through, is asleep. Sort of ironic. Verse 6. All right, again, there's so much. We're going to be here next week, so I'm getting to a point in verse 12. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They, they're rolling dice and every time they roll it, the, Jonah's number comes up. Every time. So they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they begin interrogating him. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? 
And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now just think of the, 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 what's at work there. The one who's fleeing from the presence of God makes his confession. I fear the Lord, Yahweh, God who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And we'll talk more about this week, but here are these men that are in jeopardy because Jonah is running from God. We never sin in the vacuum. We never sin in isolation. Our disobedience to God always affects other people. Then they said to him, verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick, them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And that's the last thing. Jonah resigned himself to failure. Jonah knew he was the problem, but rather than crying to God for mercy, begging the, these, these sailors, turn the ship around, I need to obey God, I need to go to Nineveh and preach, I, I messed up. He just says, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Nothing left for me now. God's done with me. God, you can live. I don't think he had any expectation but to drown in that water. He's not thinking, ah, oh, God will give me a fish. No, he's just done. You say, don't despair and give up if you've been running from God and reaping the consequences of that. All hope is not lost. Rather than give up, confess your sin to God. Cry out to him for mercy and help. Repent. Ask others for help. So what do we say from this? I am Jonah. I'm Jonah. We are Jonah when we resentfully run. There, there's a play on words happening here. This is one of those beautiful little aspects of this great story. And, and Jonah's full of stuff like this. But you see the word down throughout this text. It's repeated several times. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the inner part of the ship. He goes down into sleep. He goes down into the sea. He goes, we'll see next week, down into the belly of the fish. You get this picture of this downward progression. That's intentional by the author here. Sin is Sin always has a downward progression. You never sin upward. You never, you never sin upward to a better life. It's always down. It starts with a small decision to disobey and it ends in ruin. It's like going to the beach and you go to, you got the undertow pulling you it's kind of down the beach. You go into the water, boogie board or whatever you do in the water, and you you know, you're right in front of your little site there in the hotel that you're staying in and, and you're in the water for an hour and and, and you, you look up and you realize, I don't know where I am. Where, like, where's my stuff? Where are my kids? You know, I don't, <laughs> where, where's everything? And then you realize you're like 10 hotels down the beach. You've just slowly kind of, every wave, it just pushed you a little further, a little further. You just drifted down. This is, this is how it is. Adulterous relationships that begin with little lustful looks. Church splits begin with a little minor unforgiven offense. Addictions begin with a simple desire to cope for relief and relief in something other than God. So we've got to watch out for drift. When I watch the working of my own heart, this is what I'm compelled to write. I am Jonah. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us, and there's a lot of Jonah in most of us. Like many of you, Jonah is upstanding in most in so many ways. Good man, servant of God, fruitful ministry, but there's just part of him that's unwilling to obey God in this area, in this way. This is in this area he says, No, this is mine. He 
can't have this. So most of us, we care about doing God's will in most areas of our lives. But, but are we willing to obey God in those areas where it may cost us everything? Our reputation, our comfort, our safety, our very lives. The answer is not simply, we just need to toughen up. That wasn't Jonah's need. He wasn't a wimp. That's not his problem. He was a man, though, who saw his desires, what he wanted, his will, his plans, his expectations, his ambitions, and God's presence going in two different directions. And he chose to stay committed to what he wanted. What, what God wants for us is to so value his presence, to be so satisfied with his face, to, to be so contented with and, and to find God's nearness to be so precious to us that whatever he says to us, we say yes and we'll give up everything to have you. That's what he wants. Not to flee from his presence, but to, 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 to delight in his presence and go wherever he sends us and do whatever he says. Some of you may be on the path of the prodigal right now. And it may not be, again, visible in external ways, but it's in your heart. You're already straying far from God. Maybe you've been blessed with many spiritual privileges like Jonah, and yet you're rejecting God's word as an authority in your life, and you're resenting his character, and you're doing your best to avoid his presence, and you're relaxing when you need to be repenting, and you may already be resigned to the thought, this is just who I'll be the rest of my life. This is just what my marriage will be. This is just what, just who I am now. I just say, stop. Humble yourself. Confess your running to God. Plead with Him for His reviving work in your life. And then talk to people, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let, let us help. Many of you have prodigals in your life. Loved ones who have drifted away from a close walk with God. It could be a spouse, it could be a son or daughter, parent, sibling, friend. Maybe they grew up going to Sunday school. Maybe they even went to Christian college. Maybe they were raised to love Jesus and they memorized hundreds of Bible verses in Iwana and they served in the church and went on mission trips and were leaders in the youth group. Maybe they're preachers, maybe they're missionaries at one time. But today they're far from if it was entirely up to them, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and getting their act together, we, we should despair. It would be hopeless. If, it was, if their return was dependent upon us and what we say and how we, how we help them, then it would be futile. But we have a God who relentlessly pursues His people. So take heart. And come back next Sunday. <laughs> you don't want to end. We want to get to that. We want to get to the good news. Rebellion, running, it, it begins deep in our hearts. And the problem is not just what we do, what we say on the outside. The problem is inside of us. The good news is that God is this extremely skilled cardiologist. And his specialty is hard work. And he, he doesn't give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement, the, the help that it is, not just to see this tendency in our heart to 
to run like Jonah and to see the, the wrestlings and the his stumbling and to see ourselves reflected in that. But we also get to see the God, the same God who pursued Jonah, the same God who pursued the Ninevites is the same God who pursues us today. And so I pray that if there's someone here who's, whose heart is is being closed off to you and by their willfully closed off to you that you would you would arrest them today and uh, open their eyes to see it to confess it to plead for your mercy and help and and to to allow others in to to help and um and and God change them pursue them Lord thank you for your grace that relentlessly pursues every single one of us here we all stray. We're all prone to wonder, Lord. We feel it. We feel it. But it's your grace that constrains us, God. So help us to revel in that now, Father. And as we who have been so pursued by uh, your grace and continue to be relentlessly pursued by you, Father, help us to be um, not, not resentful of your compassion for the lost and your desire to save the lost, God, but to then run with you, with your heart beating in us, to those who don't know Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.